Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us by your Spirit through your Word. And we pray that your Spirit who gave us these words would be at work among us tonight as we, as we consider this passage together. May he strengthen me and enable me to, to preach your word faithfully and clearly and in his power. May he work among each one of us, uh, stirring our hearts, opening our eyes to see Jesus, uh, to love him and appreciate him, uh, and to change us uh, to become more like him uh, in the way we live. So we commit this time to you, Father, asking for your work among us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you ever tempted to do the wrong thing for a good cause? Now, a few years ago, some American lawyers representing a group of Ecuadorian citizens took an oil company to court for the pollution of an Ecuadorian rainforest. Uh, they told of the damage the company had done to this pristine rainforest, how they ruined the lives of the people who, who depended on it for the basic necessities of life. But in battling for their multi-billion dollar case, these American lawyers fabricated evidence, bribed court officials, and intimidated judges. And when this matter came before the U.S. Federal Court in 2014, it made this comment. Justice is not served by inflicting injustice. The ends do not justify the means. So you can't just go and do illegal acts just because you're doing it in the name of a noble cause. We mustn't only have the right goals, we need to work in the right way in order to achieve them. This Advent, we are reading the story of Ruth and Boaz. And Boaz, we shall see, was a man who did the right thing in the right way. And the book had opened in chapter 1, verse 1, with the chaos of the time of Judges. And it closes in chapter 4, verse 22, the last verse of the book, by telling us that Ruth and Boaz became ancestors of King David. And so the story is an important one in the Old Testament, isn't it? Because David would be the king who would unite Israel under God and save them from the chaos into which they descended under the Judges. If Ruth and Boaz didn't get together, there would have been no David. But even more importantly, David was the ancestor of Jesus Christ, the one who came into this world to save us from sin and death. If Ruth and Boaz didn't get together, not only would there be no David, there would be no Jesus. And if there were no Jesus, there would be no salvation. And you and I would be lost in our sins forever. But God is sovereign. And he always planned to send Jesus into the world. And this was part of his plan. And so as we prepare for Christmas, as we prepare to, to celebrate the coming of Christ in this world, it is fitting that we go back and see how God worked through these unlikely people more than a thousand years beforehand to advance that line that would lead to the birth of his son in the same little town of Bethlehem in which our story is set. Ruth 1 had begun with a famine in the Promised Land. 
We saw a couple of weeks ago how in response to that, a man named Elimelech left the land with his wife Naomi and two sons and, and went to live in Moab. He, he did what was wrong, and we saw two weeks ago why it was wrong, uh, but he presumably did it for the sake of his family. And these sons married Moabite women. One of them was Ruth. Elimelech and his sons died. Naomi and her daughters-in-law were left behind. But then God visited his people back in the promised land and gave them food. The famine was over. And Naomi decided to repent, to return to the land. And Ruth insisted on going with her. Your people will be my people, she said to Naomi. And your God will be my God. And so they went back to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. That was chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, we were introduced to a relative of Elimelech, a man named Boaz. Boaz was a good man. The word used in chapter 2 was he was a worthy man. God had commanded in the law that when landowners harvest a field, they should only go through it once and leave what is left for the poor. And that's what Boaz did. He made sure there were leftovers for the poor and the destitute, and we see a number of them gleaning in his field. And so when Ruth, the, the destitute woman, the destitute widow, she went out to glean ears of grain that had been left behind, well, she happened to do so in Boaz's field, in God's sovereignty. And he found out who she was. He advised her to stick to his field. He told his men to protect her. He told them even purposely leave behind gleanings for her. And at the end of the first day, she, she went back to tell Naomi, and Naomi worked out who he was, and she too advised Ruth to stick to his field for her safety, and she did. And she gleaned in his field until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And through Boaz, and through the loving kindness of Boaz, we saw last week, God provided for these two widows. God showed his loving kindness to the repentant Naomi and to Ruth, the Moabite woman who had come to the God of Israel to take refuge under his wings. That was chapter 2. There was, however, something in chapter 2 that I skipped over in that summary that's actually going to be really important if we're going to understand chapters 3 and 4. Remember when Naomi worked out who Boaz was? She described him in chapter 2, verse 20, as a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, what does that mean? Now, to understand this, we need to understand two different but related things about Old Testament law and Hebrew customs. First of all, property was never meant to be sold permanently outside the family. If property was sold outside the family, actually it was just leased, and it would eventually revert back to the family again. And until such time, a relative could buy it back, so it became back into the family, and he would be called a redeemer because he's buying back the property for the family. Uh, the downside is if, if time was, was, was too close to the time it's meant to automatically revert, then no one wants to buy your property because they know it's going to go back to you anyway. But if you want to sell your property permanently, then you have to do it in the family. If, if the redeemer bought it, then the transaction is permanent because it stays in the family. The second thing to understand was about marriage. If a man died without children, his brother would be obliged to marry his widow and have children with her for his brother to continue his line. And the late brother's property will go down this new line established with a widow. And that way the widow will be looked after and the brother's line preserved. And that was called Leverite marriage. 
Presumably, if there's no brother, then this job can be taken on by other male relatives who are willing to help. Now, when Naomi said Boaz was a redeemer, it means he's a candidate for both these jobs. He could marry Ruth, and the property he could redeem would then be passed on to the children he would have with her on behalf of Naomi's son, Ruth's late husband. Now, we're ready to pick up the story at the beginning of chapter 3. Beginning of chapter 3, Naomi is speaking to Ruth. She says to her in verse 1, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? She wants Ruth to settle down. Now, young people often tell me they, they find it really hard when their elders pressure them to settle down and get married. Uh, often the, the older people are genuinely, con genuinely concerned for their children, although some, you also often get uh, people who are just capable. All right? uh, Naomi is not just being a busybody. Right? Uh, she, she really wants Ruth to be looked after. You see, God's, God's been providing for them in an amazing way. But now it's the end of the harvest. Uh, Boaz has been fantastically kind, but he showed no indication of wanting to act as a redeemer. And Ruth is not going to be gleaning in his field anymore for a long time. If something's going to happen, then it's going to happen soon. So Naomi comes up with a plan. She says in verse 2, Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now the threshing floor was a, a hard flat surface on the ground where the harvest could be processed. Now, often outdoors, uh, and often in a place a little bit further away where there's a good wind, uh, they can be used to, to separate the barley or the wheat from the chaff. And so Boaz and his team will be out there working on the threshing floor. It's a big job. They'll be out there till late. But they'll also be celebrating because, well, that's, that's part of the harvest as well. So here's the plan, verse 3. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. You know, think, what kind of plan is this? What's, what's Naomi up to? What's going on? Well, Ruth says that in verse 5, she says she will do what, what Naomi says, and, and she does. She washes and anoints herself with perfume like a bride preparing for her husband. She puts on her cloak. She goes down to the threshing floor. She waits until Boaz has eaten and drunk and enjoyed the, the feasting aspects of the harvest. He's relaxed and happy. He lies down at the end of a heap of grain and he goes to sleep. And Ruth notes the place where he lies and, and later on when everyone's asleep or gone and everything's dark, she quietly goes there. She lifts the cover and lies at his feet just like Naomi told her. And then at midnight in verse 8, Boaz was startled and turned over and oh! There was a woman lying at his feet. What's, what's he going to do? And he says to her in verse 9, Who are you? And she answers, I am Ruth, 
your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Uh, earlier on in chapter 2, we've seen that um, Ruth has, has found refuge under the wings of God. Uh, in some of our other Bible readings today, we've seen about coming under, coming under God's wings. It's like seeking, seeking refuge, protection in Him. Uh, and oftentimes, it's, it's, that, that, that's, the, the metaphor there is also used for marriage. And so uh, if you look at our, our cross-reference in, in Ezekiel 16, verse 8, we see I, I spread the... When uh, um, God is speaking metaphorically of his, uh, of his marriage to Israel, He says, Behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you. And I think, oh, hang on, wings or corner of the garment? But actually, if you look on the, in, the, uh, in the footnotes of, of, uh, uh, of your Bible, in, in verse, um, the footnotes of verse, uh, verse 9, you see spreading the wings and spreading the corner of the garments, same, same thing, same word uh, in, the, in the Hebrew. In other words, spreading the corner of your garment over someone Bring, like, like spreading the wings is, is bring them under your protection. It's associated with, with, with marrying them. What's Ruth asking for? Ruth wants Leverite marriage from Boaz. She's inviting him to marry her. And the way Naomi set it up, she seems to be inviting him to do so there and then. So how does Boaz respond? Well, even though he likes Ruth, Boaz does not take shortcuts. He doesn't take advantage of the situation. Listen to what he says in verse 10. May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Right? The first kindness was, was coming back to Israel with Naomi. And the second kindness is proposing to him, the family redeemer, rather than going after someone more attractive. Because in doing so, she was perpetuating the line of her late husband and looking after her mother-in-law. See, this Moabite woman was, was not just keeping the requirements of the law, but she was, she was obeying it from the heart, the intention. And he says to her in verse 11, And now my daughter, now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. You are a worthy woman. Last chapter we saw he's a worthy man. She is a worthy woman. But there's a problem. The problem is in verse 12. Boaz says, And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Ah, now we see why Boaz hasn't acted until now. He's been doing the right thing and giving space for the closer relative. And even now, he's not going to, to consummate marriage with her because he's not the one. He's willing to marry her, but he will do it the right way. He will not take shortcuts. He's an honorable man. And so he says to her in verse 13, Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. And so she lies there and nothing happens. Early in the morning, while it's still dark, she gets up. 
uh, to avoid the gossips. He's going to send her home before people can see what's going on. Uh, and before she leaves, he tells her to hold out her garment she's wearing, and, and he measures out six measures of barley, a generous amount. And so she goes back to the city, to her mother-in-law. And when she gets back, Naomi asks her, what happened? Uh, literally, the question in verse, verse 16 is, who are you, my daughter? Who are you? In other words, are you Mrs. Boaz? And Ruth tells her the whole story. She also tells her why he gave the barley, because he had said to her in verse 17, the six, you, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. See, he's serious about this. He's not, he's not just fobbing her off. He's, the, the barley gift is a token of that, a deposit, if you like, showing that he really intends to take Ruth as his wife if the other man doesn't. And Naomi gets the message. Wait, my daughter, she says in verse 18, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Remember, at the beginning of the chapter, Naomi's aim was to find rest for Ruth. And now she says, Boaz will not rest until he's taken care of things. Next week, we'll see how he does that. But for now, let us consider how this part of the story connects with us. Well, we've already seen in this series, haven't we, that Boaz is someone who points forward to Christ. He's an, he is an ancestor of Christ. Like Jesus, he's a man from Bethlehem who is the Redeemer. Like Jesus, Boaz was a righteous man who didn't just keep the letter of the law, but, but the intention as well. And Boaz, we've seen, is the one whom God was using to, to reverse the fortunes of Naomi, one of God's people who repented, and Ruth, a foreigner who bound herself to the God of Israel. And Jesus, on a much greater scale, would reverse the fortunes of both the Jews who believed in him and the Gentiles who sought refuge in the God of Israel. But in today's passage, the thing we see is that Boaz doesn't just do the right thing. He does it in the right way. He knows it will be a good thing to act as a redeemer. He knows it will be a good thing to take Ruth as his wife and to redeem the property for Naomi. And he wants to do it. He could have taken Ruth and his wife and consummated the marriage there and then on the threshing floor. It might have been tempting. And maybe that's what Naomi was hoping would happen. Maybe that's why she sent Ruth to him in secret in the middle of the night, dressed in perfume like a bride. Maybe she hoped that Ruth's attractiveness together with the wine he had drunk would, would goad him into action. But Boaz said, wait. He would not take a shortcut. He would do the right thing at the right time in the right way. He would first deal with a closer relative. He would state his intention to marry Ruth in daylight, in public, before witnesses at the gate of the city. And then and only then would he consummate the marriage with Ruth as his wife. Boaz is a man of integrity who will not take a shortcut. He would not only have the right goals, he would work to achieve them in the right way. Our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, was also tempted to take a shortcut. But like Boaz, he refused. He knew he was meant to be the king of all the world. God the Father had told him at his baptism, you are my son, the king. 
But he also knew he would have to suffer and die first. He knew he would be raised and exalted as king, but, but first would come the cross, where he would suffer not only the, the physical pain and torture of crucifixion, but, but far more significantly, the spiritual ang- agony of, of facing the wrath of a holy God for the sins of the world, bearing in himself the full extent of the punishment of hell on behalf of all who believe in him. We cannot begin to grasp the horror of that suffering. And the devil offered him a shortcut. You know what? The devil says, you don't need to go to the cross to bear sin. You don't need to defeat me to rule the world. I can give it to you. How's that? You join my side. You can have the crown without the cross, the glory without the pain. Come on my side. Bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He would not take the shortcut. For he did not only have the right goal, he would work to achieve it in the right way, even though that was painful. And what about us? Are we tempted to take shortcuts? Do we see a good end and then make the end justify the means? Do we try to do the right thing in the wrong way? Friends, God can bring good out of evil, yes. But it is never God's will that you and I should do evil that good might come. We must not only have the right goals, we must work to achieve them in the right way. When is it that you and I are tempted to take shortcuts instead of doing things that are right? Well, some students here might have assignments and, and you really need to ace that assignment so you can pass your subject. And, and maybe it's not just pride, but, but it, maybe it's actually really, really important that you do so for, for the sake of your family or your ministry or whatever. And you're tempted to take a shortcut to, to maybe plagiarize someone else's work or go and buy an essay on the internet. But you, you, you must not only just have the right goals, to work to achieve it in the right way. Or maybe you're at work and you know that your company really, really needs that contract to survive. You've got responsibility to your employees and their family, to your shareholders, to the, to, to the people who made you loans. You've got to close that deal. And you're tempted to bribe someone from the other side to make sure you get it. After all, it's probably what your competitors are doing. We don't only have to have the right goals. We need to work to achieve them in the right way. Or maybe you're in a relationship then you're heading for marriage and you're, you're tempted to consummate the marriage before it actually takes place. Or maybe you, you want to live together as if you're a husband and wife but without actually being husband and wife. You want to take the shortcut. You think it'll be good for your relationship. But that is against God's plans for marriage. You mustn't only have the right goals. You need to work to achieve them in the right way. Or maybe you're in ministry and you know that God wants you to proclaim his word, even if it's not popular, but you know that you can draw crowds by the entertaining preaching of prosperity. God wants you rich and successful and I will show you how. You can have anything you want, name it, claim it, and it's yours. Who doesn't want to believe that, huh? 
And maybe when they flock in to hear this teaching and maybe somewhere in there we can tell them about the death and resurrection of Jesus and maybe even one day the cost of following him. But, but let's take a shortcut first and preach what is frankly a false gospel of prosperity. Not only have to have the right goals, I need to work to achieve them in the right way. Or maybe you're running late to meet someone, and I know I do this, I, I hate to be late because I don't want to communicate disrespect to the other person, but I'm terrible. I often get so engrossed in, in what I'm doing or with who I'm with, and I, and I fail to keep track of time, and so I end up breaking the law by speeding on the road to try and make up for lost time. But Christians are meant to obey the law, aren't we? And yes, it's good and right that I'm on time to meet with you, but I mustn't only have the right goals, I need to work to achieve them in the right way. The end doesn't justify the means. Friends, Boaz pointed forward to Jesus. His character was a shadow of his. And like Jesus, he would not take the shortcut. And if we are disciples of Jesus, we need to follow Jesus as well. Our characters need to become more like his. We need to be people who, like Boaz, like Jesus, work out the right goals in the right way and not take the shortcut. The other thing we realize in this passage is that Boaz doesn't have to be the redeemer. The law doesn't force him to do it because actually there's, there's someone else. He's got a choice here. He can very easily get out of the situation, but he doesn't. He promises Ruth that if the other redeemer doesn't act, then, then he'll be willing to play the part. And he promises to settle the matter with the other redeemer. And having seen his character and received his gift, Naomi was confident that he would not rest until he had done so. Brothers and sisters, Jesus did not have to redeem us either. He was under no obligation. We had no hold on him. We had no claim on him. And yet in his love, he took the initiative to redeem us. And he did not rest until he had settled the matter of our redemption. He offered himself on the cross as the one true, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for our sin in order to redeem us. He paid that terrible price so that we could be his. And then and only then did he sit down at the right hand of God. And having redeemed us for himself, we now look forward to the day when he will return for us, his church, seen together corporately as his bride, to finally consummate our marriage at the right time in the right way, to take us to be with him, our Redeemer and Bridegroom, to enjoy his presence forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Thank you that he didn't take shortcuts to glory, but that he was willing to suffer and die in order to redeem us. Please help us as his disciples to follow him on that path. Please forgive us for the times where we have failed to do this. Help us not only to have the right goals, but to work to achieve them in the right way. And we ask this in Jesus' name.